In this episode, we continue our conversation and investigation of universal design for learning. Feedback is such an important part of a process for designing universally. Uh, it's why we will never be finished designing our courses because we will always, by listening to feedback, realize there are opportunities to be more inclusive, um, be more engaging, be more accessible with our students. So let's get into that conversation about feedback. Um, well, thanks, Kim, for joining us. Um, I, th I think we'll start with a quick conversation about bias and data. So, you know, uh, the kind of data we're talking about is, is uh, data from students or data measuring student experiences. So what would you say uh, 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 generally and, and then as a teacher, like what motivations, what frameworks, what agendas should we bring to that data or should we withhold, kind of hold back as we view that data? Um, so that we don't skew or, or misinterpret what the data say. Interpretation is really a bit of an art form, and it's different depending on whether you're collecting quantitative data or you're collecting qualitative data, where you're having conversations with people. Perhaps you're doing interviews or you're doing focus groups, what have you. I think when, when as a faculty member, you start collecting feedback, there's a, a very natural human reaction to be a little bit on the defensive. If a student says something that's a, that doesn't sound right to you, the immediate response is to think, well, well, how is that wrong? Or what does the student not understand about what, what I'm trying to teach or convey? In reality, the student is, is telling you very honestly their experiences and how they, with the sum of their own experiences, are interpreting the information that that you're trying to convey to them. So I think it's it's very important to have kind of an open mind when you hear the reactions and just kind of sit with what they're, and I'm focusing largely on the qualitative piece right now, but really just kind of sit with what they're telling you for a second and think about, okay, well, my immediate reaction is this can't possibly be, but what potentially am I missing in this conversation? What pieces don't I know? And particularly when you hear themes, if one, it's not at all uncommon for one unique student to have a very unique experience and, and have feedback that seems so out of line with everything else you're hearing from other students. But as you start sensing, getting themes, you know, different students saying kind of the same thing multiple times. Typically with focus groups, we look at three to five times. If you hear the same thing, that's something absolutely to really focus on and not treat it kind of like as an outlier aberrational sort of thing. But if you get these themes, these are the areas where you want to spend a lot of focus. Also with human nature, if somebody says something extremely negative or extremely positive, the extremely positive, you think, okay, yeah, that sounds great. The extremely negative, that's the one that most folks have a tendency to fix on, particularly with survey data. Commentary, uh, very frequently we'll be re uh, reviewing information and in surveys with folks and they'll say, oh, but this one student said this one thing. You gotta remember it's one student and you have to kind of think about the totality of everything that's being presented, not just a singular comment. It's impossible for me to let that one thing go. Do it all the time. <laughs> As faculty, I think we all feel that way. And it, it is the one, right? And, mm -hmm. and 
<laughs> it's a bad news bias. It, you know, it, it's definitely sticking in our mind more than a thousand. Oh, this class is wonderful. I love it. It's my favorite class. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who thinks I'm shitty, right? Yeah, right. So, yeah. absolutely. And so with that bias, you know, and that's kind of the reason I started recording these these student voices because I, I've been hearing a lot about the challenges, right? I've been hearing a lot about how students are suffering, faculty are suffering, and, and no doubt, like, the, the, they're, you know, we're all working as hard as we can to alleviate a lot of uh, these issues. But I wanted to know what was going well, you know? And I also wanted to know what they thought was going well enough so that they can impart wisdom to other faculty about what's going on in their other classes that is really gonna be helpful for everybody. And, and so we could kind of share strategies that way through our students, which I think is probably the most effective way. If a student tells me, oh, this other professor does this and it's really great, it's automatically valid. It's more valid than reading it in an article or, or doing something like that. And so uh, with that bias, I, I try to check some of these when I ask these questions, because I said, this is not about my class. This is about your experience this fall 2020 in this online setting and then i also tried to reduce some of um the performative aspect of it because it could just be performing something for me by saying you know let's do the think pair share deal and one person will represent the pair so that that way they are a little safeguarded they may be representing their own ideas but it may be even easier to represent the idea of their partner so I, I thought that, you know, taking those kind of steps would make it more authentic and an anonymous survey and just having text wouldn't be as strong. And, and that kind of goes to the idea of the qualitative versus quantitative. When we're talking about student voices and things like this, what are the strengths and weaknesses of those types of data? Quantitative is in a lot of ways very concrete. So you have certain percentages of, of students being able to perform a task or be able to respond to a specific question. Qualitative, you're not going to get every single person typically in a class to respond. So you, don't, you, you only have samples and there's, there's sample bias that comes into that. Quantitative is really good at explaining what is going on. Qualitative is really good in explaining why it's happening. So you may have, for example, uh, uh, the class does extremely poorly on a given assignment and you want to know what's going on. So you start asking students, well, you know, were the directions not clear? Was it something else? Did you not have enough time to study in this uh, for this exam? That sort of thing. So you both both methodologies are extremely valuable, but they have really different focuses and purposes. Um, the qualitative is more to add more color to the conversation and more context to the conversation. The quantitative is is the concrete what's going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And going back just briefly uh, to your conversations about the pairing and sharing and, and the bias that can potentially come, when you as a faculty member are asking your students, you know, tell me how this class is going. That's valuable data, but you always have to understand to a certain degree that those students see you as the person who is awarding the grade at the end of the semester. And you may not get all of the unbiased responses that you may in a different context. And, and while we love focus groups and we want to do those as much as possible, we also understand that those are very time intensive and people intensive sorts of efforts. 
it might be valuable as, as a possibility for you to pair up with a different faculty member who teaches perhaps the same course and each of you do the interviews for that person's course. So instead of the students pairing up, the faculty pair up and you might be able to get some more in-depth responses that are a little less colored. Yeah, uh, are the, um, the surveys that we offer students through the institution, either through some kind of professional review or for some other reason, are, do you find that those are a little more reliable because they're, it, I'm not the one grading them, asking them for you know this information, and so they're kind of performing it in a certain way. It, 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 does the fact that it's sort of adjacent my class make it a little more representative, maybe, of students' experiences? Uh, well, there's a lot of factors that go into that. The biggest factor being how it's sampled, and different surveys have different responses. Most of the surveys that we do as an institution are based on a voluntary basis. Students receive something on Canvas or they get something in their email and they have the choice of responding or not. Yeah. Every single student who's enrolled gets that thing. When we do national surveys like the Community College Survey of Student Engagement, the SESI, or the uh, Survey of Entering Student Engagement, the SENSE, those have a very scientifically developed uh, sampling strategy. So they get a representative sample, but not every student is selected, but it gets away a lot from that sample bias sort of thing. The, the students who are more likely to be interested in responding to a survey are the ones, so it's not necessarily representative of the college as a whole, but it's representative of the students who actually wanted to take the time to respond to the survey. Yes. So I, I think it's that's more a sampling thing. If a student is going to take the time to respond to the survey, whether it's in, in a class or not, it's far more likely for the students to be very straightforward in their answers. Um, when we have done focus groups, when we're not teaching the course, we are outside folks, we explain to students, you know, this has nothing to do with your grade, we're not identifying you. Students have been extremely forthright in their responses, at least from our perceptions, they have been extremely forthright and, I don't get the sense that they're holding back in any way, shape, or form. Cool. Because I, so I think the way that I use data to inform my teaching, I'm really thinking of, I guess, three different student groups. There's my students that I've taught over the course of my career, and they've given me feedback uh, within a semester, at the end of the semester. Um, I rarely look at rate my professor because of all the things <laughs> we already said. I don't like my heart broken or There's ego. I feel like that's all I ever get from that, right? Um, <laughs> But there's my students over my career, and I've responded to that feedback in how I teach. But then there's also students generally, and I, and I feel like that's what you're describing here. Mm -hmm. It's sort of this generation or, or you know, the, the, the measure of the college student, sort of that kind of, you know, uh, uh, whatever that is. But then, but then there's also a student group that I'm teaching right now, right? Um, and we talked a little bit before we started recording just about how unique this situation is. So Kimberly or Kim, could you talk a little bit about what we should be doing as we're as we're about to listen to some of these students give us some feedback? How how should we how should we interpret this as we engage remote teaching? And then what can we pull out from it maybe for the long term as well? Well, as I said before we started officially recording, there is no, no period in time that we can use to compare this current period of time to, to gauge whether this is normal, not normal, 
we're we're kind of making it up as we go. And with where we have a situation where everybody is remote, nobody's connected, and you add on top of that the issues related to the power outages with the fires that even we've had in the last few weeks where access that was limited to begin with is now extremely limited from a, both a faculty and a student standpoint, we really don't have a way to, to really compare this to anything anywhere. Um, as we're looking at data for this period of time where we're kind of closed down, we're going to have to put it in the context of, of the times where we're at. And this is going to be, unfortunately, in a lot of ways, a bit of a black hole in terms of what's really going on with students. Um, I've talked in other spaces for spring 20, summer 20, and fall 20, we changed our grading practices in that normally in a given semester, if a student drops after our census deadline, they receive a graded W. And that impacts their GPA, that impacts whether or not they can repeat the course, a number of different things. And that also counts for the course's success and retention rates. Well, when we shut down for COVID, instead of getting Ws, students received EWs automatically. And those are excused withdrawals that don't count against the student and also don't count in the calculations of success and retention. So for these three semesters, when we go back and we look at, at the success rates of our courses, we say, wow, our success and retention went through the roof because all of those W's that would normally be there aren't there. Sure. We've had those conversations about, well, do we keep the EW's and just treat them like W's? Because we know not every student dropped because of COVID. Yes, and, and we're in the process right now of modifying all of our dashboards to let the users look at the data either way they want using a little button that they can select or deselect that. But we're all remote in this period of time and success and retention in the best of situations on, in online sections is not as high as a face-to-face -face traditional on-ground setting. So we also have to take that into account when we're looking at, well, we're comparing our success rates from this year with the prior year, and we're still not as high as we should be, but we're way higher if we include those EWs. Again, it's a bit of a black hole where we may not be able to tell much, unfortunately. And as a researcher, that breaks my heart, but we have to be realistic. Sure. But there would be aspects of it, like the synchronous Zoom session courses would be compared with the face-to-face -face scheduled courses of the past, yeah? Potentially, we absolutely could do something like that. Again, there's the technology aspect and, and it's slightly different. You know, We always in research, we, we aim for that perfect world where we have the perfect apples to apples comparison. And this is gonna be apples to water buffaloes for at least two or three more years. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you give us a quick, for the uninitiated, uh, the, your office's definitions of success and retention, student success and retention? Absolutely. Student success is defined as any student who completes a course with A, B, C, or P grades for our credit classes. In our non-credit adult high school, Ds are also considered in the success calculation. Ds are considered passing for credit and non-credit, but when we define success, and the ability to move on to the next level, we only take into credit only takes into account C's. When we're talking about retention, retention is the percentage of students who stay in the class until the end and don't receive a grade of W. So I may take a class and I may flunk the class by the end, I get a D or an F. 
I'm not successful, but I'm retained because I stayed until the end instead of withdrawing with a W. And that's the same for credit and non-credit. Thank you. Well, I think the uh, the apples to water buffaloes uh, <laughs> with uh, Zoom classes uh, uh, versus face-to-face -face classes, that might be a good segue into hearing from some from some of these students who are speaking to their experiences in Zoom. So maybe we can go ahead and give that a listen. What is going well and what best contributes to your learning and success? Good communications with professors. Being able to work at your own pace. Module organization makes it easier to know what's expected and do for the week. Being able to spend more time with our family and work on our own pace. Having Zoom classes where we can see each other's faces and feel that sense of community is so important. It makes the class real. It's something to look forward to. It's great for accountability. It's just very supportive. Breakout rooms where we can actually get to know and see the other students is so important, especially if we need help. That sense of community again. And then an open dialogue, a professor that doesn't just lecture and lecture and lecture, but that pauses and asks questions and sees what we think and, and it brings us all together. And I really encourages that is so helpful. Zoom meetings, letting us conversate with others. The additional resources that professors uh, give to their students through Canvas. Breakout rooms are helpful for talking with your peers. We get put into breakout rooms to interact with each other and not just listen the entire time. Yeah, definitely the Zoom classes have been more helpful than the asynchronous classes. Having that sense of community with our class period. And also, it's been helpful to have um, that schedule maneuverability. So um, to be able to go from work to school and back, and then if I need to call my Zoom call real quick, I can do that. So it, that has definitely been helpful. Group discussions are helpful, an organized Canvas page is helpful, and good clarification on assignments. Uh, being able to work at your own pace is really nice. Zoom lectures are recorded and it helps us because we, we could go back to it and we get to spend time with our families. I agree with the Zoom classes just being helpful just with how easy they are when you don't have to add on the travel time and all of the other little pieces that add into it, which carries on to the next point of saving on gas money because you don't have to travel with whether it's to one campus or to both or either or and then to work also it's saves a lot thank you so much so after listening to those first comments about what's going well for students right now kim does that resonate with other data out there about what's going well at this time or even or even before this time. I mean, a lot of it like good communication, class organization. I think these are these are things that at all times uh, are, are things that are working well for students. Yeah, absolutely. In past focus groups that we have done, connection has has been the overriding theme, regardless of the topics that we were uh, questioning students about having a connection, feeling like they have some sort of team to work with within a classroom or within the institution as a whole has been a very prevalent theme throughout those. Absolutely. So it says something for the Zoom meeting then um, as a, a sort of a 
something we can we can at least do in the meantime. Um, I don't know if I want to talk too much yet about like going forward, like what we can pull from that. So maybe Sean, just can I get your sense real quick? Because you're you're teaching um, um, with breakout rooms and stuff. Are you seeing connections being formed through breakout rooms? Are you seeing connections being formed, maybe not just with you, but also across students uh, in Zoom? So the dynamic really does mirror in a lot of ways what I've been seeing for years in my team-based learning in my classroom. And what I mean is there are some, there, there are this, there's a super efficient group, right? And they just get things done as soon as possible. And then they're sitting around waiting for everybody else, right? I gotta, I gotta come up with extra things for them. Um, and then there's the group, there's the off-task group. They have a social life and they're, and they're bringing it to the classroom and they're just loving on each other and talking about last weekend and this week, this upcoming weekend, more so than the task at hand. Yeah. And then there's uh you know, then there's a, a bunch of different mixes there. So I've had, I've visited breakout rooms where mics off and the, 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 the videos off and nobody's doing anything. And it's like a couple minutes in, so there's no way they're done with the work. And, right. and then, then they're like, oh shit, he's here. So let's, let's, let's get going. Yeah. And then I've had um, some where they always have the camera on, they're in a conversation about the content and then moving on to helping each other find jobs and, and uh, they've made those kind of connections and they've done that kind of networking in these breakout rooms. So really it is a mixed bag and no matter what I do in terms of prep for the breakout room and, and visit them and all of that kind of facilitation, it kind of, it, it's still scattered and, and varied. Yeah, so, and I always, my, my philosophy is always, if, as long as there's energy in the space, I can direct that energy. The hardest thing is when it's just dead, right? When people are just none. So if it's just socializing, I don't care what it is. If, as long as there's energy, we can turn that into some kind of pedagogical momentum. Um, but, I, but you said something, Sean, and it's sort of team-based, right? And you design your, 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 class curriculum and your activities around project orientation right so some kind of group with some kind of roles there's some structure there that, that's where I students saying that sort of clear communication clear expectation clear organization I think that's that's probably key in your class the the team orientation Kim do you is there has there been studies on classes that are sort of project-based work-based learning sort of um, you know these these different ways of teaching that really contextualize the subject for students and give them some kind of project to do. Have, have we looked at that or is there data on that? Uh, I'm not familiar with any research that's been done on, on work-based learning. In fact, I had just come from a work-based learning meeting where we as an institution are looking at all of our coursework regardless of, of whether it's in our CTE area or not, but looking at the aspects of work-based learning that are infused throughout all of our classes. And it's it's been fascinating to sit down with different groups who traditionally, like our math department, we don't have any work-based learning, but then in the conversations, they're realizing, oh yes, we do this, we do that. That really falls into that, that sort of category. So having that ability to quantify that it's going on, I think is the first step. And then secondarily in the future, looking at research to say, okay, what was the benefit of, of doing this? This is a relatively new element for us in okay. looking at this uh, statewide actually. 
And I kind of want to jump in, Kim. What, are we collecting data right now on the student experience? Constantly. With this focus in particular, right, of this online, online time we're in, is there plans for the end of the semester or something going out? Or where are we at with all that? Well, in, in terms of the, the, grant, the larger student experience, there's been a number of uh, surveys that were done uh, late spring as a result of COVID just to kind of get a sense of what students were going through. And that was at the time still relatively early in this. And, and there was the potential perception that, well, this is kind of in a couple of months, we'll all be back to normal, everything is fine. And I don't think, it, I think it, the experience of surveys now would be very different than it was initially in that spring semester. I don't know of anything that's been done recently, and by recently I mean the last couple of months. Um, there is not currently a plan to look at doing another survey for the end of this semester. Um, typically when we do surveys, it, we do them in the spring because it's it's more likely for students to have had if we're studying you know students whose experiences with given services or activities by the time we hit spring they're more likely to have experienced all of the things that we hope they'll experience as opposed to doing it first thing in the fall when you have a bunch of brand new students who may not have enough information yet to respond to those sorts of things but at this point no I don't know if there is any I have not heard of any additional survey plans. That's been one of the biggest challenges with closing down for COVID. A lot of the traditional in-classroom sorts of surveys and queries and research that, that we or the institution as a whole would normally do isn't, is no longer available. And so the immediate reaction is, well, let's just do an email survey. And we were getting three to five different survey requests a week yeah. In the end of spring and the beginning of fall. And so we kind of had to say, look, we appreciate that folks are interested in this, but we also have to be very cautious and protective of the students themselves who are saying, you know, I get 15 surveys in talking with our PIO department. Think about the volume of emails now. And that's not just surveys. That's right, advertising right. for classes, programs right. that are going on at all with the best of intentions. Right. But there comes a point where it all becomes just noise and nothing gets through to students. And so we want to be extremely careful and, and guarded with that and strategic. I mean, I remember last spring when we were moving remote, just we, we got to that point, we, that the oversaturation, right? It's everybody needs help and everybody needs resources, but there's so many resources and so many communications that I, I just, I don't even know what to do with it all, right? But along those lines, Kim, would you, I assume that the, the focus of those, those particular surveys were wanting to know information more about affective domains of learning, right? So access to technologies, you know, uh, uh, what students need, what students, exactly. uh, you know, can or cannot access in terms of what the institution can offer. Is that right? Is that what those are? Absolutely. What their student experiences were, were they, were there external factors in the students' lives that were impacting their ability to stay in school? Was housing an issue? Was access to food and rent money an issue? You know, those sorts of things down to, also, do you have the technology to continue to participate in class? Is there anything we can do to support you staying in class? Yeah. And there was a lot of efforts uh, on behalf of our career in tech ed, as well as our PIO office, and that's still going on, reaching out and contacting students who either dropped all their classes 
within the semester or had been enrolled the previous semester, had not graduated, but then still also didn't register this semester in an effort to try and get them to come back and provide the support that's needed for them to be successful. Yeah, and so you said earlier when we when we hear feedback that we have to we should we our impulse is to be defensive, but but you know to have this open mind, and that reminds me of um, a conference I attended once where we were asked to look at our own data for our own classes, and the emphasis was really on you know finding reasons. That's our that's what we want to do. What's the reason for this sort of gap or this this group not succeeding? Um, and that reason could be the student. The reason could be me. And the reason could be circumstance, right? And so the that workshop, that framework really helps me think about what do I have control over, what don't I have control over? Yeah, I was gonna say that's a good that's a good segue into the challenges here. So let's listen to those. Okay, perfect. What are the challenges? What does not help with your learning and success? Faulty and bad internet connection. Some teachers are still trying to figure out Zoom. It's very hard to stay motivated. Uh, not being able to be in a classroom setting and learning hands-on, also having the ability to not participate fully because you aren't being watched all the time. Uh, staying motivated uh, in the computer is harder than in person. Uh, one thing for sure is busy work. Um, it is, it's a waste of time and energy. Uh, like you know, read this chapter, read these two chapters and do this, this and this. And it has never even been discussed in class. And you're supposedly learning something nobody's teaching you. And for some of us, this all isn't natural, you know, and it's it's kind of ridiculous. So um, being tested on things that have never been talked about, but you're just supposed to know, um, being tested on things that are self-taught. And then also there's a lot of there's a lot of questions around what exactly is expected of us. The teachers are very vague um, about what we are supposed, exactly what we're supposed to know and what we're supposed to be learning. Yeah, they're definitely super vague. Um, I would say that another thing that is um, hurtful is that some of our classes in Zoom are huge to a point where people can disappear in them. Um, they could just never turn their camera or mic on and they basically, it's like they aren't there. Um, so it's it totally destroys that idea of community that we had talked about earlier when there's a class that's 60 people. Also with that, um, it seems like with being online rather than in class, it, there's a lot more work to be done on our own time, um, which is really hard for, for some of the students that go to school. Um, it's really hard to concentrate for and sit down and do assignments for all day with um, no guidance and, and no instruction all day. It's really hard to concentrate. So those are some things that are challenges. Staying motivated is very challenging. It can be difficult to communicate with peers other than in breakout rooms. Being held accountable for remembering when um, your assignments are due without being in a classroom setting can be difficult for sure. Too many breakout rooms is also not helpful. Waiting too long for students to respond when a professor asks a question and poor communication from professors. The lack of face-to-face -face interaction with professors is kind of difficult. More challenges that we thought of were the overlapping deadlines for multiple classes when like you have 
five classes or four uh, and everything's due on Sunday or randomly on a Tuesday. So you're just cramming everything at midnight as well as just being on the computer every day gets exhausting just like for the eyes. It's not good for them. Being at home, it's easy to get distracted when you're just at your house. And then especially if you live with people like even one other person, it's easy to get distracted. And finally, just the pressure to do everything because it's all online. So it's way more accessible and convenient too. It's just a lot of pressure when you're thinking about how you don't have to travel and like all this extra time that you have freed up now. Thanks again. You know, figuring out Zoom is is still hard for me. I mean, I'm a sociologist. I'm still trying to figure out face-to-face interaction. <laughs> this break, I feel like, I, of not being face-to-face with people, I think I'm losing what little skills I had in the first place. So, again, these sound like a lot of challenges that um, some faulty internet are, are very specific to the time we're in, but there's also some classics in there, right? Lack of motivation, um, you know, too much work, the workload is too high, uh, too much reading and writing. And we hear these are the common uh, complaints or feedback that we receive about college instruction overall. And I just think like, do we, when we look at data, maybe especially quantitative data that, that may parallel what we're hearing from the students here, Kim, do, disaggregating by, by student experience, and what I mean is like first year students or this many units versus that many units because a lot of times you're coming into college for the first time we're in a fall semester right now fall 2020 so they may be brand new to college and not even know what the workload expectations are where a more seasoned student would be like this is pretty moderate or have a better gauge um as to as to what is what what is normal right yes and and even without the covid context in this very frequently we hear from uh, first-time college students who are particularly those who are straight out of high school they had six seven periods in high school so they think they need to take six or seven courses when they get to college mm -hmm. and the reality is that's not a good plan um, <laughs> and and they not not only is is the workload much higher than what they have experienced in the past depending on on their um, the number of units that they're taking but they also have to figure in their sole responsibility for maintaining their schedules, maintaining their deadlines and managing their own workload in ways that they probably have never had to do in the past. And now you add in, okay, everything, you don't have the structure of a class schedule anymore. You're just gonna have to kind of figure it out on your own. I, I really feel for these students. I, mm. in, in watching them, it's, it's going to be interesting to see long-term how this all plays out. Yeah, that, that going back to that energy in the classroom, I think I've seen students just sort of show up in a class, haven't done the reading, but because of what happens in the small group and because of connections on the whiteboard, that student can get right back in and, and you know, motivated to go and do the reading, whatever it is. And, you know, and so the what's great about Zoom is we have an opportunity for connections. What's hard about Zoom is we want to give every student an opportunity to participate, which drags it on for too long, which makes it boring, which sort of kills the motivation, which, you know what I mean? So there's such a two sides of the coin with, with teaching remotely and, and what Zoom can offer. What's interesting there too, Curry, is 
I feel like when we think about legitimacy of course type, I think, you know, face-to-face was always like this gold standard that's like be in the classroom. A lot of people even say, no, I need to be in the classroom. I I rarely hear hear people say, I need to be in a hundred percent online class like that. (laughs) That prefer that, right? But but they don't use the word need. They say, well, I like online classes. I do it on my own pace, blah, 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 blah. Right. But people say, I need that face-to-face class. And I, I feel like maybe it's flipped a little bit in terms of a scheduled class. Because the scheduled Zoom, I feel like, is now feeling less legitimate. And that's some of the feedback that didn't make the cut for the recording. But but they talked about how like an employer doesn't take a Zoom class seriously, yeah. right? And, and and will still schedule them for something because it's like you're not really going to class. And now the, the 100% online seems to have... Uh, gain some steam and 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 gain some more legitimacy because of the flexibility and how everybody's schedules have been turned upside down and the real screen fatigue that that that's happening yeah. um, especially in video conferencing right that's right that's right and I, and part of that i wonder too is students knowing that we're all in this together and we're all grappling uh if if given an opportunity to choose a course and choose an instructor and i don't i have no nothing to back this up but i know for me i might choose an a fully online class with a student with a teacher who has a reputation for teaching online because in this situation that might be the, the the modality that i need to learn that content because there's some experience there there's some expertise there i was gonna say uh with all of these things considered Kim, what, what advice would you give to faculty as we try to seek further feedback, both quantitative and qualitative feedback to improve our courses as they are right now, like in this moment? I mean, I know you've given us some tips, but maybe how, how do we set these up? I kind of did this on the fly, to be honest with you, and it, and it worked out okay, but I, I would really like to know some better strategies for doing this in class, um, maybe based on your your experiences doing that at a wider scale? Well, I, I think maintaining communication, the students in the recordings themselves, you know, reemphasize the importance of staying in contact with students, uh, communicating constantly, requesting feedback, but also being a little gentle with yourselves hmm. to understand that this is kind of a unique sort of situation and the advice and recommendations they may be giving you are based on the circumstances of the moment. And that moment is constantly changing. And so as we move forward, continue to maintain that level of communication, you know, always seeking feedback to say, okay, you know, we've made this change, we've done this, is this still working for everybody? And using that feedback for improvement, but understanding that that we're all kind of tap dancing as fast as we can over the next few months. Yeah, and so, I want to pose a counter argument to kind of the point I just brought up. (laughs) I've been talking with colleagues who have never taught online, who are doing absolutely amazing things in Zoom with these circumstances. And I think the key to their success is exactly what you just said, Kim. It's, It's this constant open dialogue between them and their students being highly responsive to to the dynamics of a class community, right? So a 7 a.m. Zoom class versus an 11 a.m. Zoom class, right? Uh, Not totally different curriculum or totally different activities, but just a different relationship and sort of a different kind of flexible pace that that is afforded because of how the teacher is listening. And, And I guess, so what I see in that 
really is, first of all, in, in this moment of teaching remote, maybe qualitative feedback for a teacher, maybe not for the institution, but for a teacher is the most important thing because what it allows for is for that teacher and those students to come to some kind of agreement, right? Here's how we in this class are going to succeed this semester. Ab absolutely. And, and letting your students know that, that you understand or have ha at least have a certain amount of empathy for the challenges that they as students are going through, explain that you're not perfect. This is new, particularly for those who don't typically teach on Zoom, saying, you know, I'm learning as I go here. We're going to get through this together the best we can. If you have, you know, explain that you are open to recommendations. If you want to send me an email or talk to me after class to make to let me know if there's things that you need from me, please don't hesitate to do that. Just to maintain that communication. And I, I think everybody is, is as understanding as they certainly can be because we all have an understanding of, of our own circumstances and, and what folks are going through. And I think that's, that's critical to the whole process. If you come in and, and say, well, I've got all this down or, or try and give the appearance, the appearance that you've got all these things down and you don't, right. that's going to come across a lot faster and probably not go over so very well. Right. Yeah. Good to come in humble. I think it would be a good idea to end with listening to the voices of the students in their recommendations or the things they would like faculty to know that uh, would be helpful um, for their facilitation, for their their learning. And uh, But first, Kim, can you give a plug for your office and talk about how faculty can benefit from your work and maybe anything else you think would help improve our service to students using RPI and, and the work that you're doing? Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, I work in the RPI office, which is research planning and institutional effectiveness. I'm one of a team of uh, five different uh, research analysts who have different areas of expertise and experience. We also have our dean uh, who oversees all of us, <laughs> uh, as well as administrative support and a data warehouse programmer. Our data warehouse is something that we are enormously proud of. And through our data warehouse, we have been able to develop a series of dashboards that allow you as faculty to go in and explore your data. Um, we have a number of interactive dashboards where you can look at your own outcomes, compare them to the department departmental outcomes, and hopefully start some conversations that lead to the improvement of, of the student experience, not only for your own students, but for the departments as a whole and other dashboards explaining what's going on on campus. We're here to help answer questions, to help drive good decision-making using data and information. And we are a support entity and, and we're happy to help and eager to help at any time. Fantastic, thank you. And thanks so much for being on. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks, Kim. All right, let's hear from the students now. Finally, what can instructors do to better facilitate your learning and success? What, what message do you have for instructors out there that you find would be uh, helpful moving forward? Split up the workload so not all the assignments are due on one day. Experiment with keeping students engaged in classroom. Check-ins, because that way the teacher knows we're actually getting it, right? Be more understanding and considerate that we don't have a safe space at school now. So we consider it with the work learn as the workload assigned at home. 
providing more textbooks and stuff that we need since we can't all get a hold of what we need for our classes and everything. Understanding of students' concerns between working and classwork. Giving a heads up a week in advance for what the week will look like. Having consistent class structure and structure on assignments. Responding to emails quicker. Yeah, I definitely think that we need a little bit more support um, just all around. Um, we also agreed that uh, check-ins would be very helpful. We had thought maybe like two doing some breakout rooms with our classmates and checking in with each other um, as a part of classes or even um, having time before class to talk with each other, which we don't have anymore because Zoom like it only lets you in like at the point where like class starts. So we don't have that anymore. So having time to, to, to speak with our, our, our group would be awesome. And, and, and having more discussions in general, um, even on the synchronous classes, there is a, like, it is possible to have conversations and discussions. Um, so I think that those just need to be utilized better and more often from our teachers or professors. Being organized. Being more understanding. Organized Canvas page and communicating clearly. Being uh, forgiving with late assignments since it's hard to keep track of everything. And we also have just being more mindful of student situations, just the different things that they have going on with home and work, Wi-Fi, just not assigning all the extra homework that isn't very helpful or kind of like the busy work we brought up earlier. And then more communicative with the students because sometimes it feels like we're kind of self-teaching the class material and just don't get much information on the assignments or enough to complete them well. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you all so much for this feedback. It's really important to us and much needed to hear the voices of the students and um, to better understand how this is all going for you, both positive, negative, and, and also adding to that what we need to know um, so that we could be better informed in, in making decisions for the rest of the semester as we finish it up and moving forward to a spring semester that will also be online. So really appreciate it. Thanks. This episode is supported by the Miracosa Foundation's Innovation Grant. The Safe Topics podcast is produced and engineered by Kelly Barnett. James Garcia handles promotion, student recruitment, and research. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and safetopics.podbean.com. Find us on Apple and Spotify. Please rate and subscribe. Thanks for listening.